I trust that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, Carol and I did with the addition of Anna Caroline to our family. Um, it was, uh, Katie did great, and Brandon was, uh, it was just a very, very sweet time to have two grandchildren in six months. It was quite a Thanksgiving for us. And in the midst of all this blessing, we're surrounded in a world by just a lot of chaos. When you think about that blessing and then the chaos of not just Ferguson, but go on the international scale, you have Iran with on the threshold of developing uh, nuclear arms. You have Russia with this expansionist policy. You have, of course, ISIS in the Middle East. You have got Mexico, which is melting down in a drug war. And you have these pockets of absolute rebellion and chaos. And, and you really are brought to a point of saying, who in the world's in charge? I mean, what is going on? It, it actually leads you to almost question, is God sovereign? Is God in control? Well, Psalm 2 gives us, um, and I had never really studied Psalm 2 that much, but Psalm 2 gives us a, a great hope in the midst of uncertainty. Uh, you know, we're kind of apt to think, is, is God's kingdom really going to come? I mean, is God's kingdom really going to advance? Is there really going to be justice and order brought to this world? Well, Psalm 2 answers that question. Psalm 2 is saying God is going to give to his son Christ the nations. And Christ will rule over all. That's the promise of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is, is giving us hope in that God's enemies will be destroyed. God's Christ or God's Son will be enthroned, and God's people will have peace. This is a much-needed word in, in our world today. When you read through it with me, you're going to notice this kind of lofty language. This psalm is known as a royal psalm or an enthronement psalm. It, it's a psalm that they believe was used for kings when they were elevated to a throne, kind of the ascendancy of a king. May have been used for David. David's given authorship of this psalm and when he was brought to be the king of Israel. Perhaps this psalm was read. We don't know for sure. Uh, but when you read it, it seems, and it does apply to David at one level, but it sure applies to something greater than David at another level. If, for example, in verse 8, it's going to say that I will give you, ask of me, God says, ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your heritage. I will give you the ends of the earth as your possession. That's pretty big. Or in, Saul, or in verse 9, he says that he will be like a rod of iron that smashes to pieces the pottery and that all the nations will kiss the sun. This isn't said of David. There's someone greater than David. That's why this psalm is also called a Messianic psalm. A Messianic psalm because it speaks to the Messiah. It's a psalm that was written probably in 800 B.C. and it's speaking about this Messiah to come. We know the Messianic psalms because the New Testament highlights them for us. The New Testament, Jesus in fact, applies some of the psalms to his own life. But, but also the New Testament writers take psalms and they explain how Jesus was prophesied in them. And we have the freedom to do that because Jesus himself did that. In Luke chapter 24, we read this. He says, then he said to them, remember, Jesus now had been raised from the dead. He was traveling on the road to Emmaus and he was with two disciples. And here's what he said to them. 
He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then it says, then he opened their minds to understand. Can you imagine that meeting? You sit with Jesus and have him open your minds, how the Psalms speak about Jesus. That's what we'll be studying today. How does, how does this psalm provide hope for us in a sea of uncertainty? And so let's read the passage together. Psalm 2, and we'll read the whole thing, 1 through 12. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Okay, There's a few things I want to point out. First is this then I think there can be a degree of confidence that comes to the church as we understand that opposition is expected. This is not a surprise to God, that that the church, that the kingdom of God is going to face opposition, that this world is constantly in a state of upheaval. It shouldn't surprise you because it hasn't surprised him. Notice how you kind of, notice when you begin the psalm, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? You're kind of overhearing a conversation in heaven. It might be God. Speaking, it might just be the narrator of the psalm. But they're saying, why do the nations rage? Why do the people's plot in vain? There's a, there's a certain incredulousness about it. There's a certain wonderment. I would almost even say horror. I mean, why do they plot in vain? The foolishness of puny man approaching and collaborating against God. It's not an ignorance. There's an intentionality to this rebellion. You know, if you notice... <clears throat> It says the people's plot in vain. They plot, they plan. That's the same word that you find in Psalm 1. And the word translated in Psalm 1 is meditate. Meditate on the book of the law. Meditate that you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. It's an intentional thinking through how we can live in light of God's word so that we'll be like a tree, always yielding its fruit. Well, then in Psalm 2, the plotting is the same, but they're not plotting on the law of the Lord. They're plotting on opposing the Lord. These people of the land are in opposition to God. But it's not just the people of the land. It's all the way up the food chain. It's the rulers and the kings. There's a pervasive nature of opposition against God throughout all creation. I mean, we look at the world and we see how fragmented it is. But boy, we are really unified in our opposing of God. We're coming against God. And you see the nature of this opposition. They say in verse 3, let us throw off the bonds and the fetters. Let's cast aside these things. In other words, the people are wanting autonomy. 
They don't want to live under God's rule. They don't want to live under God's creation. Some of the worst, some of the most terrible words for people are the first few words in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why is that so bad? He owns everything. He rules everything. If he's created everything, he has our, he's the creator. We're the created. We have a responsibility to the creator. That's why we don't like God. That's why we want to knock him out. That's why we want to sever and create this secular state, if you will. This idea that, that we want autonomy, we want freedom. We don't want to be bound by his laws. His laws are burdensome to us. Don't ask me to live that way. And it's natural to us. You see it immediately in Genesis chapter 3. Think about it for a minute. Here, God creates Adam and Eve. He creates them without sin. They're in the garden. They have a lovely life. God says, from all the trees you can eat. I mean, that's pretty wide open. All these trees, everything I have, fellowship with God. You have a perfect creation to steward and to, and to develop. He says, but this one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat that. Well, what's the one thing they want? Well, it's the one thing they said no. It's the one thing that God said no to. And you, you feel it in your own heart, don't you? I mean, if someone tells you, you can't do this, what do you find the impulse to want to do? You want to do that which you're told you can't do. It's this desire for autonomy. We see it in the first parents. We see it in every generation following. All the way up to Jesus, even when you think about it, we've come out of the study of Matthew, and Matthew's been crystal clear that Jesus is the king, and he's bringing a kingdom. And we saw it in the first four chapters, right? The identity is declared in his being born through the power of the Spirit, without sin. He's being worshipped. His identity is clear. He's a king. His teaching is of a kingly nature. He's giving a new law on the mountain, if you will, in that Sermon on the Mount. And then his kingship is displayed in the power of healing disease and darkness and even death. And then what's he run into? Chapters 10, 11, and 12, it's all opposition. They're opposing the king, or they're opposing God and his anointed. This Christ that Jesus is, they're opposing him. And we're going to see when we pick up Matthew in the future in chapter 14 that it moves right into the plan of his death. The opposition was so great, and so it goes today. So you announce the kingdom of God. You proclaim the beauty of the gospel. You proclaim the mercy of God to us in Christ. And you find opposition. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? I want you to see that this upheaval of the world that we're facing, the confusion that sometimes makes us wonder about God's sovereignty, that, that this is not that the ISIS and Iran and Ferguson, they're all symptomatic of the issue that I'm speaking about which is we desire to be free from God's restraint. We want to be our own. We want to say, I am my own. I don't want any shackles. I don't want any rule. I don't want any authority over me. Now, when you play that out in the context of marriage, for example, do you understand the conflict that would come? So you enter a marriage where we, the two are to become one, and I have an attitude of, I don't want to live by anybody's rules. I am my own. I want to be my own director. I don't want to be told what to do. I don't want to be instructed in the way I should go. Can you imagine? And you know. You know what con conflict is in your marriage because sin. Usually it's because you're not getting what you want or you're, push you're pushing to get what you want or playing out in our sexuality. I want to be my own. I'm about my own personal pleasure. 
and you play it out in terms of our sexuality and you see selfishness and abuse. You play it out in the other relationships of your life. This is just a small microcosm of what the world's going through. It's the desire to be God. It's the pride and the arrogance that is fundamental to all men and women. This is what we see here played out at a corporate level. Now, I know you're sitting there thinking, well, I could never see myself raging against God. I can't see myself plotting in vain. I, I, I would never say I'm taking my stand against God. And, and so you look at other people, perhaps, as this applying to. But, but let me try to explain how we might be more rebellious than you think. Uh, let, let me just give some implicit rebellion. Maybe not explicit rebellion, but implicit rebellion. You know, this idea of many of us within the church are rebellious against this idea of God uh, having the character that the scriptures speak to. For example, uh, most people in this country, North America, over 90% believe in God or a concept of God. And, and they will defend that they believe in God. Now, now, they believe in their concept of God. And what I mean by that is when you ask most people about God, they're going to tell you that they believe in God, that God is a God of love. God wants us to live right, and God wants us to try to do good, but that, that, that God is a God of love, fundamentally, and that God wants us to do well, that God helps us in life, that if you have a problem and you stumble in the way, he can pick you up and help you get on the way. He's not involved in the day-to-day -day stuff, He's given you talents and gifts to do that. He's not involved in the intricacies of life. No, 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 he's given you strength to do that. You just have to dig down a little bit deeper inside. This is the picture of most Americans have of God. It, it, he's a moral God. He's therapeutic. He's concerned with us, but he's kind of deistic. He's kind of stepping back, letting things happen as they happen because he's given us this. Well, is this God? Well, the God of the Bible seems to be a little different. Uh, he sends his anointed Jesus, and Jesus says things like, well, if you want to follow me, you've got to hate your mother and father. Hey, that's kind of severe. You know, or if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. Well, that seems awful stark as well. He puts these demands on us that, frankly, are a little burdensome when you think about it. And not only does he do that, he says things like, Jesus says, nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him. You mean I can't just choose to follow God if I want to? This idea of election or this doctrine of hell, that there's a place with weeping and gnashing of teeth? You know what people say when you start explaining that? I don't, want to, I don't believe in a God like that. I don't believe in a God. I have a God of love. Well, that's rebellion against God as he's revealed himself. And that's why, that's why Psalm 2 seems so stark. You know, didn't you bristle when you heard that Jesus is going to dash to pieces his opposition? Doesn't that kind of cause you to bristle a little? We have, this, we have this malleable God that we've created in our own image. So I think there's some rebellion in that. Number two, I think there's some rebellion in the church, perhaps even in my soul, when I think about the Word of God. You know, I, I, we often look at the Word of God as most of us here would agree that it's God's Word, inerrant, infallible, leading to life and godliness and salvation, and yet we look at it like a guide maybe more of, a, more of a, a direction that it gives us. We don't look at it in its detail. We, we kind of look at God more as a consultant than, let's say, a king. He, he's a consultant in terms of he gives us advice, and like a consultant, you can kind of take the advice or you can kind of let it go. And it might not be good to let it go, but it's your choice. 
as opposed to taking the scriptures or his words as a command. In other words, we have these pockets of rebellion in our lives. I've gotten rid of the most of the big sins in my life. Perhaps for you it might be mass pornography. Or you have a tremendous lying problem or, or you've been given to stealing or, or whatever. And you get rid of the bigger things, but, but we kind of maintain a small cadre of friends, more social sins, sins that we can probably accept a little, a little bit of bitterness, maybe. I haven't forgiven somebody all the way I should, holding a little bit of frustration towards them. You know, we have these manageable sins. There's rebellion in that. You're not raging necessarily. You're not plotting against God in vain. But there's that resistance within your soul you don't want to walk as he gives commands. You want to listen to him as if he's your consultant on how to have a better life. Or, or there may be another form of rebellion that we can often exhibit. Maybe that's not as bold as this, but it's more implicit. This rebellion against the gospel. For example, many, many people, perhaps you, uh, if you were to ask, you know, has God accepted you or on what basis has God accepted you? And people will often turn to and say, well, you know, I'm, I go to church and um, I've been faithful in my marriage. And we turn to this kind of litany of things that we've done or perhaps what we haven't done. And, and, or perhaps you feel better about God when you've had a week of devotions. Or you feel closer to God when your life has been more, you've practiced the disciplines in a little greater fashion. And, and, we, and, and we kind of look at our relationship with God based upon what we've done. And there's a sort of rejection over the gospel in that. Jesus has made it clear that reconciliation with God is through faith in Christ alone. And to, to fall back on what I've done or to fall back on, on what I believe rather than on Christ alone, there's a kind of a rejection of the gospel. So, so, so when we look at this first stanza, we want to we recognize the reality of rebellion in this world, but also in our lives. Now, if you're hearing me say this thing, these things, and you're thinking, boy, I hope Bill is hearing this, and I, I hope so-and-so is really taking this to heart because they've really been walking in rebellion, I, I pray that you would not do that. I mean, I pray that you would take your own heart out and just look at it and say, where am I rebellious to God? Where am I implicitly pushing back on his good, sovereign rule in our lives. And, and I encourage you to repent, to repent of that. I have little friends, these little sins that follow me, that I've kind of made peace with. I, I don't want to make peace with them. I want to move them out. I want to give full, complete obedience to the degree that I can, repenting where I fail, knowing that the gospel frees me to repent openly before God. So that's the first thing we see. See, the reality of rebellion is, is part of every one of us, and it's important to know that in this world of uncertainty. But secondly, look with me, if you will, at the second stanza, because to have certainty in this tumultuous world is to understand the sovereignty of God and that his plan won't be thwarted. Look in verse 4. He says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The scene shifts. <clears throat> this is kind of a but God moment here. The scene shifts from the rabble and the noise of people now to heaven. And there's a picture of God sitting in the heavens. Now, you'd be surprised how oftentimes Scripture paints God as sitting in the heavens. For a king to sit is a king to rule. And so you have a picture of God sitting. He doesn't seem troubled by the events of the world. 
He doesn't seem harried. He doesn't seem concerned. He doesn't seem anxious. He's not getting up, calling in new counselors, getting new advice, making a new plan about how we're going to take care of this rebellious problem on the earth. He sits in the heavens. Makes me think of Isaiah 40, where he says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Our God is in the heavens, Psalm 115 says, he does as he pleases. It's like you remember the old, the old story of Gulliver and Gulliver's travels, and he wakes up on the beach after swimming all night, and he finds himself being you know, kind of tied down by all these little, these little beings, and he just looks at them, and he realizes he can move in a moment and crush them all, just patiently watching them. This is the, this is the kind of rebellion. This is how God sees our rebellion. And he's not just sitting in the heaven but he's pictured as laughing. He's la- there are very few times in Scripture do you ever see God laughing. But he's laughing, and it's obviously not in humor, but it's in a derision, it's in a scorn, it's in a, how arrogant can you be? He sits in the heavens and laughs at our rebellion and the rebellion of the world. And he doesn't issue forth this word of threat. What he does is he, he gives a word of his son. Here's what he says. I'm going to set my king on my holy hill. That's how God deals with the rebellion of the world, by sending his son. By sending his son to deal with the rebellion of the world. And even as the world rebels against the son, as we see in the New Testament, we don't see it stop the plan of God. God's plan is unthwarted. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, you have Peter describing that the opposition against Jesus was all planned. It was all planned. It didn't thwart God's plan at all. In fact, let me read it. In Acts chapter 4, Peter asks, he quotes Psalm 2. He says, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. So he appoints Jesus, becomes this king. He says, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So everybody was against him, even kings and rulers and all the people. He says, and you appointed them to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God uses the wickedness and the rebellion in his sovereign plan to advance his own purposes. That's how great, that's how mighty, that's how how comprehensive God is. Sitting in the heaven and laugh. Charles Spurgeon, when he preached this, when he preached on this passage, here's what he introduced his sermon with. He says this, Observe, dear friends, the wonderful contrast between the violent excitement of the enemies of the Lord and the sublime serenity of God himself. He's not disturbed, though the heathens so furiously rage and their kings and mighty ones set themselves in battle array. He smiles at them. He has them in derision. You and I are often downcast and depressed and our forebodings are dark and dismal, but God sits in eternal peacefulness and serenely overrules tumult and rebellion. The Lord reigns, and his throne is not moved, nor his rest broken, whatever may be the noise and turmoil down below. Notice the sublimity of his divine plan and his divine calm. He says, while the heathen and their princes are plotting and planning how to break his bands asunder and cast his cords from them, He has already defeated their devices. And he says to them, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill. 
You will not have my son to reign over you, but nevertheless he reigns. While you have been raging, I have crowned him. You have this picture of the absolute sovereignty of God. How foolish it is to threaten God. Only the fool says there is no God. Only the fool lives as if there is no God. He sits in the heavens and laughs. You need this view in a world of uncertainty. If you have some plastic, pasty-faced God that's just a God of love, that's old, kind of teetering and tottering, not really plugged in all the events of the day, you're going to be shaking with the way this world's going to move in upheaval. But you have a God who sits in the heavens and laughs. That, that's a bedrock that one can stand upon. But there's more providing certainty to us. And, and, and it goes on in the third stanza of this psalm where he begins to now unpack what this and who this holy king is. Look at it with me in verses 7, 8, 9. Notice in 7 he says, I will tell of the decree. So again, we have a, a scene shift in this psalm. And in verse 7 he says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, so you see this king anointed who's been set on Zion, now he's speaking. And he's saying, let me tell you the charge that God gave to me. Let me tell you the plan that he has asked me to execute. And the first thing this king does is he authenticates that he is the son of God. Because look, God says to him, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Now quickly, Please understand that this is not the initiation of Jesus in life. It's not some birth process. It's not some time that Jesus Christ was created. The scriptures are clear that Jesus is eternally existent, one with the Father and the Spirit. So one, together, always. But, but what does this mean? Well, in Jesus' ministry, God is confirming to the world that he he is the unique son that is the king that's now going to be set on this holy hill. And, and you saw that in the baptism in, in Matthew chapter 3, right? He, you, know, you hear this voice from heaven in the baptism, and he says this. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. God confirms, I love the son, I'm pleased in him. He is satisfying to me. You see it at the transfiguration when he says, this is my beloved son. He says, listen to him. Listen to him because he's a king. He's come as king. Those confirm the sonship, but there's an event that uniquely confirms his sonship, that there'll never be a son like Jesus. There'll never be a following king after Jesus. And that's at his resurrection. That at the resurrection, when God raised the son from the dead, he established him as the eternal son forever. And we learn this in Acts chapter 13. Again, Peter referencing Psalm 2. He says this, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In other words, in the resurrection, God is saying, this is the one to whom you kiss and submit your lives to and believe. We see the same thing in Romans 1.4. And he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus is, is telling us, this is the basis of my reign. I was raised from the dead. That was when God declared me to be the son. But notice the extent of his reign, the eventual extent of his reign. Look in verse 8. 
He says, ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your heritage. God is saying to Jesus, give me your prayer request. Ask of me, I'll give you the nations. The ends of the earth will be your possession. Do you understand the the comprehensive, the colossal, the glorious reign that Christ will eventually have as it's moving out even now? You know, Abraham Kuyper, that great Dutch theologian and statesman, he's the one that said that there is no place on this earth where Jesus could not stand, even a square inch could not stand and say, this is mine, it's all his. That he reigns over all things. Yes, the world is upheaval, but we see this is part of the plan. This is all part of this eventual bringing down all the enemies of God. So his reign is going to extend. We're going to sing at the end of this service, Jesus shall reign from shore to shore. Wherever the sun shines, he's going to reign. And look at the power of his reign in verse 9. This is, read this with deep sobriety. Look, he says, you shall break them. So God is instructing him, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now listen, if you put a ceramic vase on a table, and you take an iron bar, and you have the two meet, the pottery will never win. The pottery will not provide even a good defense. It will be smashed to pieces. One million out of one million times. In other words, there is no rebellion against the reign of Christ. This is speaking to the eventual judgment of all the enemies of God. This, this ought to bring us to a place of, of, of deep reverence for the power of Jesus Christ. That if you oppose Jesus Christ, there is an end that is, that is permanent, it's complete, and it's absolutely frightening. Absolutely, there is no resistance to his reign. So permanent, so complete will it be. So, in fact, I was thinking, you know, we're in Advent season, of course, and whenever you're going to hear Handel's Messiah, you'll hear it now. And there's that stanza, I think it's the eighth stanza, where it says, who can behold the day of his coming? Who can stand before his coming? He's like a fire. He's He's like a refiner's fire, and he's like fuller soap. There's no one that will stand before him on that day. This is the reign he has. So, In the midst of our upheaval, this is the Christ that we have. Folks, for this, this to me, and even woven within this stanza, <clears throat> we're on the other side of the cross, we see the grace in these verses. Why? Because think about it. In 9, he says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, and yet he hasn't, has he? And this is the irony of the gospel. This is the irony for the New Testament Christian. Then, in fact, the king that was sent to judge first is judged for us. For the Christian, he bears the sin, and God brings his wrath and fury upon the Son. That the king who was sent to crush rebellion is crushed by the Father for our rebellion. This is the incredible nature of the gospel for the Christian. This is why we look at this day as a day not of fear but of hope. Why, in John 5, we're told that we who believe in the Father and the Son, that we've passed out of death and judgment into life. So for the Christian, this is a time of rejoicing. Advent, we look at the first coming, but with the first coming is the second coming. So we, the grace of God 
why, why he would even put that interlude of gospel preaching to draw people in. It'll be a question that we'll always have. Why the mercy? Why the patience? Why the long-suffering, Father? Why? We were so deserving. All of us have been enemies. The passage that Luke read at the beginning of the, of the service, we've all been against God with hostility. I mean, if you're a Christian here, can you rejoice with me over the gospel? I mean, can you be thankful that he who came to crush was crushed? He who came to judge was judged. He who came to put asunder and to, to just remove all wickedness took it upon himself for you. That he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know that he's borne your shame and your guilt and your sin because of the separation and the judgment and the crushing that he endured for you. But isn't there also great excitement for the Christian over the extent of his kingdom? I mean, think about it. I mean, his kingdom is going to be glorious. You know, I was reading a, a blog um, back from October, and we look at the U.S. as kind of retracting in Christianity. We've never really been a Christian nation. I, I think that's, a, that's an expression that's picked up and gained a lot of speed. I think our nation has been based upon Christian principles, much of it, but we haven't been a Christian nation as if everybody's been a Christian. And, and, but we look at this, and we do see this furthering removal from God as the center of the lives of many of the people in this country. And, uh, and we get scared. We think, what's happening to the kingdom? It's like the tide, it's going out. But I want to remind you that God is moving greatly, that his kingdom is expanding greatly. There are some estimates that by 2050, one in three uh, people in China will be Christians. Then in 1900, uh, 10% of Africa would identify themselves as Christian, and now 54% do. South America is experiencing, it's called the global south now. This just this swelling up of the gospel going forth, producing converts in the global south. It's profound. We don't see it because we tend to live at the end of our nose, but the reality of it is God is doing great things in this world. His kingdom is expanding in the midst of the upheaval. It's very, very encouraging. So what do we do here? Well, when you look at this psalm, Notice the final stanza. So the first three stanzas, he's reminded us of the reality of rebellion. Don't be surprised. Don't be put off by that. This is the nature of man and woman to be in opposition to God. Don't be put off by that. Look to the sovereignty of God in four to six. He sits in the heavens and laughs. And, and then move with confidence as you go through seven to nine about the power of Christ and the kingdom that is coming to brand. But then look at 10 to 12, because the narrator of the psalm seems to turn to the, to the non-Christian, to the one who's not submissive to God, to the one who is rebellious to God. Look what he says. He says, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. In other words, with this data now in play, he says, be wise. And that word means you better be discerning. You better be paying attention to all that you're learning. And be warned, because this isn't some false fire drill. This is the real deal. Be wise and be warned. And then he says, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. To kiss the sun, it's an expression to cleave to, to lay hold of. It's really an expression of worship, of submission to God. He's calling for the non-Christian. And if you're a non-Christian here, what do you do with this text? You either have to say, well, it's just folklore. 
It's a fairy tale. I don't need to worry about it. Or if you take it seriously, then you do need to worry about it. You do need to concern yourself with it. And and, and what the instructions are, and again, we see grace here, that after those first nine verses, he's instructing the sinner in the way to go. And the way to go is to repent and believe, to repent of your sins, to be wise, which means to repent. God, forgive me. I have stood in opposition. I've stood in hostility to you. I do want my own way. I want to go my own way. I have felt your law has been burdensome to me. I haven't considered you a God of grace. And I would encourage you to repent and to confess and to submit to Christ. Notice that last warning in verse 12. He says, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. He says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. There is no refuge apart from him. There is no refuge from him. In fact, in Revelation 6, we kind of see a snapshot of this day. And in Revelation 6, we read this. He says, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave or free, will hide themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come. And who can stand? There is no refuge from him, but there is refuge in him. There is the grace of God existing now for us to turn to him, to find this refuge by faith and repentance. That's the first thing Jesus preached when he came to establish his kingdom. He said, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That's what it is. But for the Christian here, how do you respond to this? Well, well, first, I would encourage you to be prepared to face opposition. Don't be surprised. Don't be throttled by it. Don't be nervous by it. There are some temporal hardships. There's no doubt about it. But that's all they are. They're temporal. I mean, the eternal glory that awaits those who suffer will far outshadow any any current suffering. So if, you're, if you are uh, a Christian, if you've placed your faith, your hope is in Christ, you're submitting him, be prepared for opposition. Be prepared for rebellion. Do not let it shake you. Don't be surprised. And, and you need this. This is a strong tonic. You pick up the paper, gracious, you can really go into a fit of despair. No, no, no. This is the way of the world as it kind of chugs and churns forward in its opposition to God. You understand why we have upheaval. Because people are trying to live apart from the one that has created them. And God will give them no peace. And they will constantly live in upheaval. And you need to be prepared for that. But secondly, you need to be confident in God. The Christian is never the pessimist. The Christian is never... He sits in the heavens and laughs. If you don't have a picture of this kind of God, if your God is somehow less than that, then you need to reform your understanding of God by the scriptures. Over and over, he sits in the heavens and he rules. That's the kind of God we serve. Yes, it seems chaotic right now, but be mindful. Things can change in a day. So be confident in God's plan. Don't feel that God's plan can be thwarted by the wickedness and the rebellion of men. It cannot be. They thought crucifying Christ was the answer to their problems, and yet God spins it around to be salvation for the world. That's the way he does it. 
He's a very counterintuitive God. He does things in darkness that we can't understand. And then thirdly, I would encourage you to be bold. Be bold, especially in this time of Advent when people are actually singing the gospel in these holiday hymns and Christmas hymns. You know, I'm even saying holiday hymns. Singing Christmas hymns and be bold about your witness about this Jesus being the king of this kingdom. I mean, be bold about it. Be confident. Jesus asked God to give me the nations, and God gave them to him. The nations are his. Don't be just locally sensitive. Be globally aware. I mean, be praying for the nations. Even be praying now for the nations. Praying for the church in Syria. Praying for the church in Iraq. Praying for the church in Vietnam and Sudan. Be globally aware. God has given the Son the nations. And now, now it's the church displaying the manifold wisdom of God, going forth, preaching the gospel, drawing the nations in. So let's take a minute now and just think through the weight of this passage. I I trust you've been encouraged in this picture of God. We are longing for this day. I guess that's, if I had one fourth thing to say to you is be expectant. Be expectant for this day. Will it come in our lifetime? I have no idea. It doesn't matter to me in some respects, but I want to live in this humble expectation Yes, he is coming. I love that verse in Hebrews where he says that he came once to save us from our sins, but he comes again to those who are longing for his return. I I want us to be a people who are longing for it. We're not unaware of it. We're not failing to think about it, but we're actually thinking, meditating, and considering what that day will be like when he comes and brings about a perfect, just restoration of all things. So, uh, So let's pray for a few minutes in silence. This is where we're asking you, Trusting the Spirit of God to lead you into a time of confession, perhaps a time of petition, or perhaps a a time of of thanksgiving to God. We're going to do it silently, and then uh, Ray's going to close us in just a moment.